The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So last week I talked about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And today I'd like to talk about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially giving a different version of the Dharma talk I gave last week. So, uh, you know, it's kind of approaching it from a completely different angle. Um, so, um, see how that goes. I mean, I, I thought it might be an interesting thing to do, to give the same, essentially the same, what could be titled the same Dharma talk two weeks in a row, um, but offer something, a new perspective about, about the, uh, the teachings. So the, um, the Four Noble Truths are a um, the foundational teaching that the Buddha offered. Um, it really was kind of a turning of his mind around um, what is it that causes our struggles in our life. When he woke up to the struggles, when he woke up to suffering in his life, the... Um, the understanding that he came to, he framed in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Or that's that's the, the way it's taught, that, that his uh, understanding that night that he woke up, the night that he had his awakening experience, was framed in terms of the Four Noble Truths. The truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering. It's very oriented around suffering, but I look at that as being because the that was the the problem the Buddha was looking at. You know, he was interested in understanding what suffering was and how it might be possible to end it, and so it makes sense that his understanding was expressed in those terms. So the usual way that four noble truths are understood is kind of reflected in the way that they're stated. In the first, the truth of suffering. And here we're suffering. What suffering means here is um, you might call it a mental reactivity to experience. Either a pushing away of experience or trying to hold on to something. Wanting something to stay or wanting to get rid of something. Um, That the suffering that the Buddha talked about being possible to end in his understanding, his understanding around that, is that it's not possible through an act of meditation to have the body um, um, have no more pain. It's possible in a state of meditation to, for a time, have the body completely not be percepting, perceiving pain. So it can feel really good at times to be in meditation and have the mind get into a state where it's no longer receiving those pain sensations. But when you come out of that state, if you have, a, if you have cut your hand with a knife, you're going to feel that as pain. You're going to feel that as painful sensation. So the, the suffering that the Buddha talked about being possible to be relieved of is not the physical pain that is very natural part of being a human being. It was it, the the suffering the Buddha talked about being possible to be relieved of is the reactivity, the resistance to 
the fact that we have physical unpleasant sensation. We don't like it, we don't want it, we want to get rid of it. The fact that we don't like the fact that when we have pleasant physical sensations, they tend to go away. And the fact that we kind of just don't really connect to experience that doesn't interest us. So the, the, the mind kind of being either in this state of resistance, pushing away, or in a state of wanting to hold on to, clinging to, or a state of denial, delusion. That was what he looked at and recognized if the mind could let go of those things, the mind could let go of greed, of aversion, of delusion, it would be living in a different world. This mind would be living in a different world if it let go of greed, aversion, and delusion. A different inner world. Not a different world of the, you know, the sense world, but a different inner landscape. And so that's what he came to. That was his understanding, that it is these factors of greed, of wanting to hold on to things, of aversion, of wanting to get rid of things, of delusion, of not wanting to connect, of denial that really are our, the place or the reason why we struggle. We feel dissatisfied. We feel unease. We feel stress. We feel suffering. All of those terms are versions of what the Buddha termed as dukkha. That term dukkha usually translated as simply suffering. But suffering is a really you know, strong word in the English language. And dukkha has a much more subtle connotation in many ways. It, it encompasses the obvious, the, what we would call suffering, but it also encompasses very subtle kinds of unease, of dissatisfaction, of distress, of feeling just this offness, feeling that things are off. And the Buddha said, first noble truth, there is suffering. The truth of suffering, where this suffering has to do with how our minds are relating to experience. And this cause of suffering is essentially that reactivity of mind. That greed, that aversion, that that delusion. So the... um, the first two noble truths are related in a cause and effect relationship for the usual way that they're understood that the second noble truth the truth of the cause of suffering is the cause of the first noble truth the truth of suffering that makes sense right there is the cause of suffering the cause is the cause of suffering that that cause being that clinging that or that that uh, that resistance that holding So then the second two noble truths are also connected in a cause and effect relationship. Third noble truth is the truth uh, that it's possible to come to an end of suffering. Now, not possible to come to an end of physical pain. The Buddha himself is said to have had a bad back. And at times, uh, his back was so painful, it was said that he... um, couldn't give the Dharma talk, you know. He couldn't give the talk that that day for his community, and he had to ask somebody else to give the talk. He said, "Ananda, please give the talk today. I need to lie down. My back is too painful." Um, 
So the enlightenment of the Buddha didn't free him from that physical pain. But what it freed him of, my understanding is what it freed him of is the reactivity to that physical pain. That his mind was not at all disturbed by the fact that there was the physical pain in his back. It was not a problem. Just to fathom that, you know, what would it mean to have physical pain and have it not be a problem? Just imagining that for me is inspiring as a kind of a shifting of perspective around what I think of as suffering. And so this is the kind of suffering that, that the Buddha said it's possible to be free of, this mental reactivity. It's, things cannot be a problem. You know, you could say that the cessation of suffering is the state of no problem. No problem. So that is the third noble truth, that that's possible. The Buddha stated that's possible. The fourth noble truth is the, um, usually termed the truth of the path leading to the ending of suffering. So again, this path we'd understand as being the, um, the cause of the third noble truth, that if there's a path that leads to the end of suffering, if we walk that path, if we follow that path, it will lead me to the ending of suffering. And so the, the fourth noble truth is, or following, acting on the fourth noble truth, is the cause for the third noble truth. And so these, these four noble truths are, are related in these pairs of cause and effect. And I'll come back to that later. I hope I can come back to that later. I <laughs> hope I get to that part. I'll do my best. So in this way of understanding the, um, the aspects of the Eightfold Path are really practices. They're tools. And this is the way I spoke about the Eightfold Path last week. Eightfold Path is tools to help us shift our perspective, to help us shift our perspective around where happiness comes from, to help us shift our perspective around how our minds actually contribute to suffering. As we begin to understand how our mind contributes to suffering, the mind begins to let go of it. So the Eightfold Path are understood as practices. We cultivate this path by engaging in these practices. So these practices, these eight practices of the Eightfold Path, are wise understanding, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And last time I did a very broad brushstroke over these. And so this week I'd like to talk about each one a little bit individually to give you a sense of each of these um, factors, each of these eight paths, each of these practices, essentially. So the first, wise view. Um, These first two, actually, wise view and wise intention, are about wisdom. They're about what, what is the understanding that we need to begin to engage. So the first wise view is um, what is it that we need to understand? And it's no surprise, actually, that what the Buddha 
realize that we need to understand is something about suffering, something about dukkha, something about this dukkha. And what he realized people need to understand is the Four Noble Truths. So this is, um, this is a place where there's many of this kind of situation in the Buddhist teachings. The Four Noble Truths are a set of four things. So there's the, the truth of suffering, the truth of cause of suffering, the truth of cessation of suffering, the truth of the path. So the Eightfold Path is the last aspect of the Four Noble Truths. And then you come into the Eightfold Path and start looking at the Eightfold Path. And the very first aspect of the Eightfold Path refers us back to the Four Noble Truths. So there's a a circle, there's a cycle right in there. And there's a little bit of a paradox in that. But to me, what it speaks to is is the, um, kind of the cyclic nature of the path, in a way. That we have to begin somewhere. We have to begin by understanding by reflecting on truth, to begin by understanding and reflecting on, well, you know, okay, what did the Buddha say about this? You know, it's not something that you can just get by, by um, you know, saying, oh, I'm suffering. You know, it's like it, it, very few of us, I, I mean, one, one of my teachers, one of my teachers, Sayadaw Uteshaniya, said, if you didn't, hadn't heard what the Buddha taught about suffering, this notion of it actually is your own mind that is either pushing away or holding on to something, you would never figure it out. It would be so unlikely that you would figure that out without having the, the, the wisdom of the Buddha to help us point in that direction. There's said to be a very few people that can have that shift of perspective on their own, without having it pointed out to them. That it is possible for it to be, to be realized without having somebody tell you about it. But that it takes a very rare person to have that happen. So for the vast majority of us, we need somebody to tell us. We need somebody to help us shift our perspective. And so to me, this is what this first aspect of the Eightfold Path is. The first practice that we need to engage with is taking in some teachings, taking in some wisdom, taking in some information that will help us to shift our perspective, help us to understand suffering is created. Does unease, dissatisfaction, distress, stress, all of these various forms of dukkha that can be freed, they are created by how our mind reacts to experience. That's essentially what I understand to be the pith teaching of the Four Noble Truths. That suffering is created by our minds. Thank goodness it's created by our minds because with that there's the possibility that we can change our minds. If it was inherent in the, um, uh, the way the body and mind relate to the world and was like a you know, hardwired thing, it would be hopeless. But it is not hardwired. It has to do with how our minds respond, and there is a possibility of changing our minds. That, to me, is kind of the the core wisdom of the Four Noble Truths. And that's the first thing, the first practice that we need to engage with, is taking in that wisdom. So that's that's wise understanding, where we begin on the Eightfold Path. 
given some of that understanding, we uh, start to potentially get interested in um, following some of the tools, the practices. So we may, we may start to recognize, okay, you know, if suffering is the issue and there's a way to free my mind of suffering, how might I engage in the world? You know, or, or there becomes this intention to engage in a way that might lead us away from our habitual ways of responding to the world and towards a new shifted perspective. So this is wise intention. What, what, is the, what are the intentions that support our moving towards happiness, moving towards that letting go, moving towards freedom from this reactivity, this mental reactivity? And the Buddha suggested that there are three basic intentions that help us. First, the intention... Um, the word that is usually translated, the, the word, the Pali word is nekama. Um, and the wor- way it's usually translated is renunciation. And renunciation doesn't have a very good reputation in our culture. So, um, you know, we can also think of it as letting go. You know, that's got a better sound to it, right? You know, we like letting go. Um, you know, renunciation. So the intention here is about letting go, essentially letting go of the um, the way that we normally engage in dealing with the world. So beginning to see that the way we normally engage with dealing with the world, wanting to hold on to pleasant things, wanting to get rid of unpleasant things, that that's not actually so helpful. And so seeing if you can renounce that habitual pattern in favor of a different approach. And that different approach is, can you um, um, notice the tendency to want to get rid of or hold on to rather than acting on that tendency. So renunciation, you know, when we think of the word renunciation, we think about like not having things that we like. You know, that's, that's I think, a lot of the way we think about renunciation is not having things that we like. And one of the ways to look at renunciation in this practice is that what we're renouncing is all of those things that create suffering in our lives. Now it's a, it takes a shift of perspective to see it that way because our habit of what makes us happy is very short-sighted. Our habit of what makes us happy is have the next pleasant hit of something, get rid of the next hit, you know, to get rid of anything that's unpleasant. That's kind of our, our habit there. But we start to see, we we may start to understand that that habit, that short-sighted habit of where happiness comes from, is not conducive to a long-term well-being. So we begin to, to appreciate the benefit of letting go of that habit. So this is this first intention. Begin to let go of the things that keep us hooked to this Um, habitual pattern around where we think we would find happiness. 
And maybe this takes a little bit of a leap of faith to um, to begin to see that there's a another way of engaging in the world that can lead to actually a deeper sense of well-being, a deeper sense of ease and peace that comes not from having what we want, but from letting go of the wanting. Not from pushing away what we want, but also not holding on to it. So sometimes when we talk about this notion of renunciation, we think it means pushing away pleasant things. That's not what it's saying. It's kind of more open hand. If there's something pleasant happening, recognizing, oh yeah, there's something pleasant happening. Not, ooh, more, more, I want more of that. If there's something unpleasant happening, recognizing, oh yeah, there's something unpleasant happening. Not pushing away. So the, that's, that's that intention of renunciation. One, one teacher stated it so beautifully, actually, that um, what we typically... I mean, we're always actually renouncing something. We're always choosing something over something else. So when we choose to get what we want, what are we renouncing when we're doing that? What we're renouncing is the possibility of well-being. So, just reflecting on you know, what would you like to what would you like to renounce? The other two aspects of wise intention are um, the Buddha suggested that an intention of kindness and compassion are beautiful intentions that will support moving away from dukkha. And essentially those are kind of in relationship with the world. If we think about wanting to find ways to free ourselves from suffering, free the world from pain, from distress, dissatisfaction, despair, suffering, then engaging in the, in the world with an intention of kindness and compassion is supportive for that. So with this understanding, the the understanding of how the Four Noble Truths is helpful, we may start to have these intentions to explore these practices and engage in the world with kindness and compassion. So we begin to act in a way. The the movement in, in stepping onto this path, beginning to understand moves us towards this intention to engage. Engage in the world in a way that supports non-harming and letting go. That's that's really the two key aspects of wise intention. There's the the aspect of letting go, the renunciation aspect, and the aspect of non-harming, which is encompassed in kindness and compassion. The second three... The, 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 the next three factors of the Eightfold Path have to do with this harmonizing of our conduct in the world. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. And these are framed in terms of speech to avoid, actions to avoid, and in general, livelihood to avoid. Um, 
so that that these um, it's not so much it's not so much about you know why speech isn't saying you have to speak in these ways it's saying you have to not speak in these ways that the absence of certain ways of speaking results in wise speech so the there are four aspects of wise speech and they are all framed in terms of avoiding avoiding false speech so avoiding falsehood, avoiding divisive speech, avoiding speech. The the framing of it in the suttas is not to tell things here about those people there in order to divide these people here from those people there. So it's kind of like tail-bearing slander, you know, that kind of thing. Talking, Talking about people in order to create division. That's what divisive speech is. Now this is not necessarily what might be termed um, gossip. I mean, a lot of gossip has this quality. You know, it's like, did you hear? And there is that sense of being in division. I mean, if the person you're saying, did you hear about, heard you, there would be a division probably. But it's not, and sometimes I've heard people say that one aspect of wise speech is never to talk about something who's not present, somebody who's not present in the room, and that is not what wise what this aspect of wise speech is about. It, the Buddha doesn't say you can't speak about somebody. You know, did you hear that so and so fell down and broke their leg? They need some help. Can you go visit them? You know, that's not divisive. That's promoting. Uh, harmony. It's promoting help. It's promoting compassion. So the in- part of the exploration is the intention, looking at the intention behind your speech. In your speaking, and that's something that's interesting to look at. If you are speaking about somebody who's not present, what is your intention? You know, is your intention to create some kind of sense of unity here at the expense of somebody else? Or is it is it with this intention of kindness and compassion? Then the, uh, the, the third aspect of wise speech is to abstain or avoid harsh speech. And my understanding of this is you know, harshness of language and harshness of tone, both. So you may be saying something with an ostensibly kind word with a tone that just cuts. You know, and again, it's about the intention. It's the intention behind that that you know, people know. You know, that that's the intention with that harsh tone. So refraining from harsh speech. And the fourth is one of the most challenging for us. I think it's um, the fourth is abstaining from idle chatter. So. You know, there's a lot of idle chatter that happens in our world. Um, And again, you know, there's something about one exploration. There's gray areas around this. I mean, what is idle chatter? You know, the, the definition of it is something along the lines of words spoken to no purpose. So again, it comes back to intention. What is the purpose behind what you're saying? You might be having a conversation with somebody. Um, and the purpose, I mean, from, from one perspective, it might sound like idle chatter. Oh, yeah, how about those niners, you know? 
Um, on another level, it's about connection. It's about, you know, I have this, I have this way into a connection with this person. Let's start there. And then, you know, then it becomes, the, the, the art becomes seeing when it does lead to just, you know, idle, idleness of chatter. I mean, the, the reason for abstaining from idle chatter is because it tends to create a mind that is not settled and stable. I mean, it's, it's like a mind that's just wandering around. So the, the um, refraining from idle chatter is partly to help support the, the mind in settling. But for me, this is especially an exploration around intention. When I notice I'm talking about things that maybe aren't so, you know, deep and meaningful, let's say, you know. So it's not that every single conversation you have has to be completely deep and meaningful, but it does it have intention behind it? Is there purpose behind it? Is it connecting with kindness, with compassion. And one, one piece I'll say about this, um, a piece that I found very interesting um, in my exploration of the texts and things, I found this very interesting place that explored the various aspects of um, uh, how the mind lets go. So, the mind lets go of various things at various levels over time. So in general, our waking up process is kind of it's staged. You know, We let go of some of the more obvious things, and then there's some subtler things that we let go of. And, um, and there's this one place in one of the commentaries that talks about these four aspects of, of wise speech. And um, the, the process of these stages, it said, there's said to be four stages of letting go that happen in our practice. And this first aspect, the first aspect of false speech, that one goes pretty quickly. The next two, harsh speech and divisive speech, they begin to let go of at the third level of letting go. You know, that, that the, that's, that's the level of you know, the mind starts to let go of any kind of greed and aversion. That these under, the understanding is that harsh speech and divisive speech are connected to greed and aversion, and that the um, that it's not until the mind has completely let go of greed and aversion that this would necessarily fall away. So that's pre- that's pretty amazing. You know, that's a pretty deep level of letting go. You know, the, the letting go of all greed and aversion. And idle chatter, it's said that it doesn't go until you're completely awakened. <laughs> so, it will be with us for a while. The next aspect is wise action. So this is taking, taking um, how, how we act in the world. And again, it's framed in terms of actions to avoid. So, Refraining from taking life. Refraining from taking what is not offered, so refraining from stealing. And refraining from sexual misconduct. And this is, uh, in the texts, referred to as... um, Basically, it's adultery, but it's... um, 
I think we can really look, of it, look at it as harming with our sexuality. Again, all of these, all of these um, aspects of ethical conduct are attempting to help us avoid harming, to engage in the world in a non-harming way. And so these actions of, of refraining from taking life, that's refraining from harming life. Refraining from taking what's not given is respecting the property of others. Recognizing that if you take something that doesn't belong to you, it's depriving it, its owner of that. And that is a form of harming. And then harming through sexual conduct. That we, we want to avoid creating that kind of harm. So that, those are the aspects of wise action. Then there's wise livelihood. And really the, the easiest way to look at that, I mean, the Buddha did offer, he said, there's five professions you should avoid if you want to follow this path. Trading in weapons, trading in poisons, trading in living beings, so slavery, prostitution, trading in meat, refraining from trading in meat, and trading in intoxicants. So refraining from those occupations. But really, the kind of foundational definition of wise speech, I mean, of wise livelihood, is refraining from engaging in in wrong speech and wrong action. So that if your profession is requiring you to lie, to steal... That's not right livelihood. So we can kind of look at right livelihood as finding a profession in which we can behave in a non-harming way in the world. Now again, there's always going to be gray areas. You know, the, I worked in the computer industry for a long time, and um, you know, computers are kind of neutral things. You know, they can be used for great good in the world, and they can be used for great harm in the world. So. You know, I, I tried to engage in a way such that, well, some of what I worked on, it's possible that could have been used for harmful purposes. It wasn't my intention that it'd be used for harmful purposes. So, again, we really have to, to reflect on it. And as we deepen in the path, we may get more sensitive to that level of... Um, um, where harm may be being caused. And it may ask, there may be ways in which we want to shift what we're doing. But, you know, that's, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a reflection for each of us. So wise intention is really crucial in the engagement with this aspect of sila. You know, that looking at what our intention is. So, for instance, we might be avoiding divisive speech, for the, with the purpose of deceiving somebody. We might be refraining from doing those, having, speaking divisively with the purpose of deceiving somebody or gaining something. So that, while it's good that you're refraining from the divisive speech, to look at the intention behind your speech, that's really what, we're, what we are asked to do here. The cultivation with ethical conduct isn't simply about saying, 
you know, okay, it says thou shalt not, so I won't. It's, it's, it's more about looking at what is the intention that makes me want to do that and exploring that, looking at that. So uh, that's what we're asked to do, to look at our intention behind our actions and make an exploration there. It's not simply about with a rote mind saying, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to steal. That mind that's simply engaging in that rote fashion may have all kinds of intentions under the surface that are not so helpful, like that, that purpose of um, gaining something from, being, from speaking in a certain way. So looking at your intentions... Living our lives in harmony, we start to see that it cultivates a more peaceful mind. This is one of the big benefits of sila. There's a, a phrase called, well, there's two phrases that, that are very closely related. One is called freedom from remorse. You know, when you engage ethically in the world, your mind is free from that regret, that feeling of having done something unwholesome. So that freedom from remorse... It's also talked about as being the bliss of blamelessness. So it's not simply being free of remorse. It actually feels really good. <laughs> so it's a, it's, it's, it's a kind of a blissful space to live ethically. So it's not just about saying, I'm not going to do these things. It's about cultivating beautiful qualities in the mind. So the, uh, this this cultivating these qualities through our actions begins to rebound on our minds. It begins to, you know, we, we cultivate, for instance, refraining from killing, and we, um, be, or we're in that act of refraining from killing. So, you know, the ants in my kitchen, I practiced this with this for a long time, you know. Um, not killing the ants that came into my kitchen, but trying to, you know, I was practicing removing them from my kitchen. Um, and what happened is I started feeling a connection with the ants. You know, I started feeling compassion for the ants. This is what happens. You know, the, the engagement in ethical conduct begins to create beautiful qualities in our minds. So there's, a, there's a, like a rebound on our minds as we engage ethically in the world. And then we move to the aspect of mental cultivation. So the, the engaging in ethical conduct begins to naturally lead to cultivating these beautiful qualities in our mind. And mental cultivation supports that. It supports more of that um, um, cultivation of beautiful qualities. So there's wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration in this aspect of the Eightfold Path. And wise effort... You know, sila is about cultivating uh, wholesome actions, avoiding unwholesome actions. Wise effort is about looking at wholesome mind states, encouraging wholesome mind states, noticing when there are unwholesome mind states, and seeing if we can let go of unwholesome mind states. So wise effort is about kind of doing the same thing in our mind that the ethical conduct is doing in our behavior. So there's four kinds of wise effort, and I sometimes give whole talks on wise effort, so I'm just going to state these and leave it there. There's four words that I'll give you, basically. 
there is avoiding unwholesome states that are not currently present. So there's, that's one aspect of, of wise effort, that when unwholesome states are not present, we, um, we try to avoid them. And this may be by, you know, essentially noticing, noticing causes and conditions that would lead us into those kinds of states, those difficult states, and avoiding those conditions. You know, if you notice that you have um, an argument with somebody every time you bring up a political conversation, one way of avoiding that contention is to simply say, okay, let's not go there. Then there is a further exploration of that, which might be, how can we go there and explore not being reactive? That would be the more subtle form of that. So this exploration around wise effort takes us from the kind of obvious kinds of, well, okay, every time I walk into that person's house, I get so mad at them, then I'll just never go there again. You know, Well, that's maybe the first path to avoiding that reactivity. But there's a deeper exploration we're asked to make in this avoiding. So there's avoiding unwholesome states that have not arisen. Abandoning unwholesome states that have arisen. So the letting go part. And this letting go usually isn't simply about saying, oh, there's that unwholesome state, I'll let that go. You know, that, we don't seem to be able to do that. But we can... Uh, abandon with mindfulness. We can turn our attention towards and let be. Rather than acting on those unwholesome states, we can observe them, let them be. And that letting be is a kind of a letting go. So that's the abandoning. That's much of the way we abandon unwholesome states is through mindfulness. Cultivating wholesome states that have, have not arisen. bringing your uh, attention to cultivating kindness, cultivating um, beautiful states of mind that are not present right now. So this is, the, this is for instance, the practice of metta, of kindness, of compassion. We, we actively work to cultivate these wholesome states that are not present. My avoiding killing the ants was doing this in an indirect way. I wasn't trying to cultivate compassion, but I was avoiding the situation of uh, the, the thing that would get in the way of compassion. And the compassion began to arise. So that's a way to cultivate wholesome states. To, you know, that avoiding the things that get in the way of unwholesome states allows the wholesome states to begin to arise. Then there's maintaining wholesome states that have arisen when they come up. When they arise, how do we support them? How do we nourish them? So there's avoiding, abandoning, cultivating, and maintaining. Then there's wise mindfulness, which is um, really a mindfulness and awareness of what's happening in the present moment with wisdom accompanying it. You know, the, the wisdom of how do I want to direct my attention? Using wise effort. You know, marrying essentially mindfulness to wise effort to help us let go of things that lead us to suffering and move us in the direction of non-suffering. And wise concentration is the, 
Now, wise concentration is cultivated through essentially practicing wise effort and wise mindfulness together. That the, the concentration is more of a result in a way. That concentration results from making the effort to be present in a wholesome way. Concentration um, can two ways that it's defined. One as kind of a unification of mind, a mind that is not scattered, but may be receiving many experiences. Another way that it's experienced or defined is a stillness of mind. It, they, they can be two different experiences. They're both that collectedness of mind, both the mind that is not knocked off balance by um, by some kind of reactivity. There's, there's a way in which that concentration leads to a balance of mind, that stillness, that stability of mind, to not be knocked off by everything that comes by, every little thing that comes by. You know, the, the mind can be stable, present with the flow of sound. You know, we were practicing with sound earlier. You know, the train goes by, the, the door opens and closes, and the mind can just be with that. You know, oh, there's the next sound, there's the next sound, there's the next sound. The mind that's not concentrated picks up on the train, gets on the train, and goes down to Palo Alto. You know, it's, it's following the... The, the thread of thought. So that's, you know, that, that's the mind that gets pulled out of the present moment. The concentrated mind is able to stay in the present moment. So these factors of the Eightfold Path support us in um, ending our suffering. How does that work? How does that work? The, the definition of the cause, you know, the, 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 I'll turn it around. The definition of suffering ending is the absence of greed, the absence of aversion, and the absence of delusion. So the freedom, the peacefulness comes from the absence of that reactivity. So how does the Eightfold Path help us in letting go of that reactivity? It's the freedom from that we're exploring here. So the, there's, if we think about the, the Eightfold Path, it's got these three sections to it. It's got the section of ethical conduct, it's got the section of, of mental cultivation, and it's got the section of um, wisdom. And there's another teaching that talks about the ways that we struggle in our lives. We struggle in our behavior. And there's a kind of a way that when we're reactive to things that it comes out in our behavior. There's a way that we struggle and suffer because of what's happening in our own minds. That's a, that's a kind of subtler level of suffering. You know, the grossest level of suffering is the kind of suffering that comes because we're flailing around in the world and making a mess, you know, like the bull in the china, sh- the bull in the china shop. Then there's a level of suffering because we're flailing around in our minds. We may not be making such a mess out in the world, but it doesn't feel very good inside. You know, so there's that level of suffering. The 
aspect of the Eightfold Path, the, the ethical conduct section of the Eightfold Path, is what helps us to let go of the suffering that's caused by acting out in the world. So the, that level of suffering gets addressed by the practices of ethical conduct. The mind flailing around, creating its suffering, you know, the, the kind of suffering that we experience, that's addressed through the aspect of cultivating wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. Because that is addressing the inner landscape of how our mind reacts to things. So that aspect of the Eightfold Path addresses that kind of more subtle level where it's our minds that are flailing around, but not necessarily, we're not necessarily acting out. Then there's said to be an even subtler level of suffering that is not obvious. It's called the latent tendency to suffering. It's like, you may not be suffering right now, but you kind of know that it's only because conditions are such that things are pretty good right now, and you know that you know, if so- something happened, you know, if so-and-so walked into the room, there would be a problem. You know, that, so there's this, this kind of latent tendency that we have. It's not active in the moment, but we have these tendencies to react. That's kind of the most subtle level of suffering. And that's, you know, that's the hardest level to uproot that we could know or be in a place where we'd recognize it just wouldn't matter what happened that there would be no reactivity no matter what happened. And the aspect of the Eightfold Path that addresses that is wisdom, is wise understanding and wise intention. So this brings us back full circle again, that the, it takes a deep shift of understanding for that, those subtlest levels of uh, suffering, the subtlest levels of possibility of suffering to be uprooted the kind of eightfold, the, the kind of uh, wisdom we started the eightfold path with is more intellectual understanding, reflective understanding. That's not enough to uproot those latent tendencies. It takes more of the practicing, following the, the practices that the Buddha suggested, and then seeing for ourselves how the mind can become free of that holding. And in seeing that release, seeing how that freedom is created, that kind of wisdom becomes the kind of wisdom that can begin to uproot those latent tendencies. It begins to reorient our minds. So it's the practices, the, the direct seeing of how the mind is suffering and how the mind will start to let go of that suffering that helps to really free us. And I've only got a minute, I think, or so to, to do this last part, to come back to what I promised to come back to. But I'll, I'll see what I can do. I'll see if I can explore this. Um, so the Eightfold Path is also understood not just to be the, the way that we free ourselves, from suffering. I mean, the, the, the first way I talked about the Eightfold Path, that the, the Eightfold Path is the cause of freedom of suffering. We practice, we cultivate these tools 
that the Buddha suggested. But the Buddha also said, there's a, there's a teaching that somebody who is fully awake, somebody who's liberated, somebody who's let go of all of that reactivity will naturally be do, living the Eightfold Path. So it's also, in a way, the result of our practice. There's a, a phrase that when someone has fully let go, that they are living right view of the one beyond training, right intention of the one beyond training, right speech, right action, right livelihood of the one beyond training. And that that's just the natural manifestation of their life. They don't have to do it. They don't have to try. They don't have to say, oh, I need to pick up you know, wise speech right now or I have to do mindfulness or practice concentration right now. It's natural. It's kind of the natural unfolding of their life because of that having let go of the, uh, the craving, the, the wanting things to be other than they are. So in a way... The Eightfold Path can be seen as the culmination of practice. That someone who is fully awake is living the Eightfold Path. And I, I think that's beautiful because the, you know, we can look at the Four Noble Truths as rather than being the Second Noble Truth causes the First Noble Truth and the Fourth Noble Truth causes the Third Noble Truth, we can actually look at them in sequence and the Buddha offered actions for each of the Four Noble Truths. He said, suffering should be understood. And so this makes the Four Noble Truths practices. Suffering should be understood. When we practice that, when we practice understanding suffering, what we see is the cause of suffering and that it should be let go of. We see how our mind clings and holds on. And it begins to support the the direct seeing and understanding of suffering, the mind naturally starts to let go of the causes of suffering. So that first noble truth, understanding suffering, leads us directly to letting go of the cause of suffering. And what does that do for us? It takes us to the place of realizing the end of suffering, the third noble truth. And what happens as we realize the ending of suffering? We live the Eightfold Path. So the Four Noble Truths can also be looked at as a causal sequence. First leads to the second. Understanding the first leads to letting go. Understanding suffering leads to letting go of the cause of suffering. Leads to the realizing of the ending of suffering, which leads us to living the Eightfold Path. So that's a kind of a different perspective on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And that the, the path is the result of our practice. And in a way, what we're doing as we practice the Eightfold Path is modeling somebody who's awake. So we are, you know, trying to live the awakened life by practicing those practices. And it's not that we would, you know, that they would end or stop. They would just... The shift, in my, the shift would be that they'd become natural as opposed to having to be something that we would do. So that was a little more than a minute. I apologize for that. That was a couple minutes there. So, 
Um, I'm going to be away for quite a few weeks. I'm teaching several retreats back to back. And so I'm going from Hawaii to Massachusetts. I'll be going from sun to snow (laughs) over the next couple of months. So I'll be away until the end of February. And I have arranged um, that there'll be teachers coming for group for, for blocks of time. So that it's not going to just be, you know, separate speakers each night, but there'll be, you know, people coming. Max is coming for the next three weeks, and then I think I have somebody coming for two weeks, and then another two weeks, and, and then I'll be back. So I hope you enjoy your winter here, and I'll see you in March. Thank you.